Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you Epicureans, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is your culinary obsessed lifestyle show where every weekend we obsess over what to eat and drink next. I'm teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours and we're talking seasonal inspiration with lots of inspiring advice. I'm all about the role that food plays in our lives. And so this show is a continuing conversation on the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, and the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. Whether you love to cook or love to eat, or you're all about living the best life, well, then this is your show. I talk delectable dishes, health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, tech, fitness, and more. And my goal is to satiate your appetite. So do stay tuned because there is delectable conversation all throughout this hour. A very happy Father's Day as well to all the dads that either uh, dabble or totally indulge in wonderful food and wine. A very happy Father's Day weekend to you. And do know that if you happen to have missed a show, you can always fill your weekend listening to podcasts. You'll find them on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. My website at chefjamie.com will make you a better cook. And I hope that you'll follow me, become a friend and a fan on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, let's dig in. So summer screams for cool drinks and backyard barbecues, right? But how do you elevate those seasonal cocktails? Well, to me, it's all about staying cool. For years, the leading bars across the country and around the world have taken great pride in maintaining their cutting-edge cocktail programs. But it's only in the past five years or so that ice has become the hot topic, and everyone is looking to new ways to impress when it comes to keeping drinks cool. So don't sweat those rising temperatures. Just drop one of my infused ice cubes with fruits or veggies or herbs into a cocktail or a tall glass of water and watch the heat melt away. Your seasonal cocktails will come alive when you create flavor-infused ice cubes. And I guarantee you'll have your guests saying, wow. So how do you do it? Well, it's a great way to use it up or to uh, clean out the produce bin or to refresh the garden. And you pack leaves of mint, for instance, into oversized silicon ice trays and you fill the trays with water and then you freeze them. And just think about the mojitos you can make. You don't need silicone ice trays, by the way. You can do it in your regular ice cube trays or whatever you might have. But I love how the Icy cold hints of fresh mint unravel into a drink with each sip as the ice cubes dissolve and disperse. And these infused cubes work with all sorts of herbs or edible flowers and even fruit. So from a tall pitcher of lemonade to a fresh glass of water with a thin slice of lemon in the ice cube just to freshen up the taste, this is my best summer inspiration to keep it cool and to keep 
you cool. Because I'm a vodka girl. So my summer drink is what I call a vodka nut. It's vodka and coconut water. But I have now elevated to coconut water ice cubes. Because for those that know me, I believe that vodka is best in a glass with ice, period. And I love this coconut water ice cube because it slowly dissipates into the vodka, sort of uh, smoothing out uh, the upcoming sips, let's say. There's something, you know, wonderful about vodka on the rocks. Um, And by the last few sips, it has, you know, diluted enough, essentially, that you're considering a full glass of water and maybe your next cocktail. But the coconut water ice cubes really add a refreshing punch that uh, dissolves throughout the course of the drink. Now, Uh, Think about compounding that concept and making sriracha ice cubes or uh, just about any chili paste, gochujang or otherwise will work. Oh, I'm thinking kimchi ice cubes for just a second there. I had like a total pickled ice cube experience. I have to try that. Uh, But that, um, that chili paste sriracha name your favorite hot sauce ice cube that I mentioned. Oh, for your Bloody Mary. Yes, the possibilities are endless. Now, here are some more suggestions inspired by the trendiest bars across the U.S. In Atlanta, one of downtown Atlanta's liveliest spots features a very forward-thinking beverage program, in fact, and they offer cocktails that are uh, paired with infused ice cubes and a very large range of hand-selected tequilas. So they're matching tequila with ice cubes made from coconut water and fresh pineapple. I'm all for that. In New York City, jalapeno slices infuse their flavor into ice cubes and watermelon juice. Jalapeno watermelon juice ice cubes to kiss some gin. Oh, that is a summertime sparkler. And then um, in Sydney, Australia... The infused ice cube craze has extended, uh, in fact, to the other side of the world in big style because the uh, stylish bars there are serving barrel-aged bourbon with maple-infused ice cubes and an orange twist. Oh, for sure. Okay, don't forget that if you need a shortcut, um, I like to make boozy ice pops where you actually place a fruit-flavored popsicle in a big glass of Prosecco or Cava and the popsicle melts slowly and it infuses into the sparkling wine and it's very delicious. So if you have a bottle of Prosecco or Cava and um, one of your kids' favorite flavored uh, popsicles in the freezer, you have a cocktail right now. Now, I'd like to go back for a moment and talk about the science of ice, if I may, as long as we're talking about ice, ice, baby. A great summer cocktail needs three things, in my opinion. It needs some sort of fresh ingredient. It needs a good quality liquor. And I think it needs to be, if intended to be cold, as bracingly cold as possible, as long as it takes to drink it. There's nothing worse than a warm cocktail. And if you want to raise your cocktail game, then it is all about the ice. And if you're not infusing the ice with flavor, that's just fine. But please make sure that you're serving clear ice cubes. So 
when you freeze a regular water from the tap or even the ice cubes that your freezer produces on its own, you will find that they are slightly cloudy, right? Uh, because there is air trapped in that ice cube, which often means interior cracks. It means um, faster melting, and it also means cloudy cubes. So purified water is often the solution. If you're making spheres at home or you're a fancy ice aficionado, you're buying purified water to freeze. But I will say that you can easily make clear ice cubes at home right now with boiled water. Yes, the purified water works well, but boiled water is clearly, pun intended by the way, the easiest solution. So clear ice is formed from pure water that doesn't contain any dissolved gases. So to make clear ice cubes, you use tap water, you boil the tap water twice, then you let it cool, pour it into an ice cube tray, and you freeze it. And that is the ultimate solution. So now your drink is cold and oh, it's full of flavor and cheers to you and cheers to dad this Father's Day and cheers to summer, of course. If you're looking for cocktail inspiration, ice infusion ideas and more, uh, check them out, chefjamie.com. Coming up, Amy Emberling, partner and master baker of the Ann Arbor, Michigan famous bakehouse called Zingerman's is sharing the secret magic brownie recipe for the first time right after this. Also, we'll talk with Kevin Bigos, a scientist looking into the DNA of grape varietals. And before the end of the hour, we'll get uh, a dose of medicine from the good doctor, Scott Litton of the Mayo Clinic. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more inspiring conversation to satiate your appetite, of course, right after this. And welcome back. Raise your glass because we're sipping and savoring in your radio today. Think you know all there is to know about wine? Think again. Kevin Bigos is a world-traveling journalist who set out to discover the science and origins of wine. His goal is to map the DNA of every known grape varietal. 
And in Tasting the Past, his new book, an enthralling read, and the number one new release on Amazon in Food and Wine, Kevin unravels one wine myth after another. It's part historical dig, part science, and part mythology. And Kevin Bigos is here to share the science of flavor and his vast search for the origins of wine. Journalist Kevin Bigos is a former MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow and an Associated Press Correspondent. And I welcome you, Kevin, to the show. Glad to be here, Chef Hmm. Jamie. Thank you. Um, What a fascinating read. I would love if you'd give us some backstory as to what set you on your journey to trace the DNA of wine grapes. There aren't many like you. I was in Amman, Jordan, which is not a place known for its wine. And the hotel bar had this little bottle from Cremason Monastery and Winery. That was 2008, 10 years ago. And I thought to myself, monks were still making wine in, you know, the Middle East in 2008. So I tried the wine, and it was really good. And I thought I'd buy it again back in America, but you couldn't buy it here. So for years, I couldn't buy it, and that piqued my interest, and I kept looking for more information. And it turns out they were using old native grape varieties from the Middle East, Jandali and Hamdani and Baladi. Um, And that started me off looking for native grapes around the world. It's always uh, wanting something we can't get that invigorates the search, right? (laughs) Yep. Yep. <laughs> something to be said for that tell uh, tell us how you investigate please about your wine ser- uh, research it's it's not common practice yeah i'm a little of an oddball i guess but <laughs> i love science and i al- also learn so well just talking to scientists so of course i visited vineyards around the world from the caucasus mountains to israel to greece and italy and france Uh, But in each place I talk to archaeologists and scientists and geneticists who work on grape research, and they all had fascinating stories that dovetailed, you know, with the wines I was tasting, sometimes history, sometimes the chemistry of wine, or just think about the family tree. You know, a lot of us love researching who our ancestors were. I realized for the first time I could research you know, what the ancestry of wine grapes were. You've always been an enophile, a wine lover, a collector, a a sipper, a taster? You know, I think I was a pretty average wine lover in that I thought wine was invented in France or, you know, maybe Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a little intimidated by, you know, all the different, you know, critics and lists and things like that, so... I had wines I liked, but I wasn't very adventurous for most of my life, Hmm. you know, until these last five or ten years when I started trying new things and discovered there was these whole other worlds of wine that I'd never heard of. Okay, so who really invented winemaking? Because I know, unbeknownst to many of our beliefs, and yours as well, it was not the French. It was not the French. They were about five or 6,000 years after it was invented uh, (laughs) in the Caucasus Mountains, probably in what's now Armenia or Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, Mm. uh, or eastern Turkey. You know, the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers where the first civilizations came about thousands of years ago. But we think about 8,000 years ago as the first hard archaeological evidence for winemaking, and it's from that region. And are any of those wine grapes that you searched and sought out uh, they are still being uh, used for winemaking in those remote parts. But do you believe that any of them have 
a chance at remaining? Are are they the next big wine grape? Are they coming back, per se? You know, the Republic of Georgia is an interesting story because they decided to really promote their own native grapes, which have these odd names, Riccatelli and Kisi and Saparabi, but they make beautiful, beautiful wines. Um, and everyone from the winemakers to even the, the churches, I, mi- I visited a great monastery in the Caucasus Mountains that uses these local grapes. So they've got broad support, and, you know, they're being welcomed by critics all over the world, you know, serious wine critics from London to New York to California. Uh, so I think the Georgian wines and the grapes will survive. Which is, I think, for any food or wine lover, one thing to be grateful for. I mean, we're gratuitous for the fact that they're they're not on the brink of extinction. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating in the book to read from your science background and passion how you discussed at length DNA analysis and their, the high-tech tools that help winemakers rediscover these native grapes, the rare ones, and to rescue them to make sure that they don't disappear. Tell us about the, the tech world, the science side. I hadn't realized until I started this book that you can do, D- I should have known, but you can do <laughs> DNA analysis on a grapevine just like you can on a human. Hmm. And you can find out, you know, details of who its parentage and history was and tracing back thousands of years. I mean, you can see in the DNA, actually, that it looks like even before humans were making wine, maybe as far as ten or 15,000 years ago, they were starting to harvest the wild grapes. And you can see faint little echoes in the genome of how that impacted the wild grape population. Um, so to me, I love those kind of stories. And But it gives scientists, people start to see now, they can identify precisely what a variety is because, you know, Sometimes people use the same names. They'll say, oh, that was Malvasia or Muscat or Pinot, when it really wasn't Pinot. Mm. Um, and it's helping preserve some of these rare little grape rice that sometimes just exist on a few acres in places around the world. I wonder if you feel that the beauty of science when it comes to grapes and DNA is a double-edged sword, though, because there is some synthetic winemaking being done as you talk about in the book, to replicate the expensive bottles, is that a benefit, a blessing, or a curse? I feel, I think, kind of like you do, it feels like a double-edged sword mm-hmm. because, I mean, it's like great cooking. I mean, you want to <laughs> use great ingredients right. and pull out the natural flavors and use your skills to blend them together and present them together. But, you know, do you really want to just press a button like out of Star Trek and have a meal like pop <laughs> out of a, you know, some you know, shooting the wall. I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think wine is, you know, just like cooking in that the individual touch is important and it's what has led to so many great both culinary and wine, you know, innovations. You can see humans have changed how grapes grow. Wild grapes were this kind of, you know, they didn't have much flesh on them or much juice. It was big seed with a little bit of flesh. So we've been encouraging them for thousands of years to, you know, produce some of the flavors we like, and then we refine them just like chefs refine dinners. Mm -hmm. And I will say, it's a brilliant read, and I know you're being very well received, and it's well-deserved. Your wine bucket list just got bigger. Enophiles will delight 
in Kevin Bigos's new book entitled Tasting the Past. It is a viticulture detective story and a very captivating read. And it's available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. And you can learn more at kevinbigos.com. We'll continue to sip and savor, so don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back. Satiating your sweet tooth every weekend. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Since 1992, Michigan's renowned artisanal bakery, Zingerman's Bakehouse, has fed a fan base across the U.S. and beyond with their deliciously sweet, chewy, luscious brownies, and oh, the ginger snaps, their famous sour cream coffee cake, which by the way, I remember from growing up because my mom was always trying to duplicate it, and oh, their fragrant loaves of Jewish rye and more. Zingerman's is a cultural and culinary institution, and for the first time to celebrate their 25th anniversary, the Zingerman's bakers are sharing the recipes in a just-released cookbook. To the delight of those of us around the world that adore Zingerman's. And I will say there is a thrill in being able to make their sweet treats at home. Master Bakers Amy Emberling and Frank Carollo are the co-owners of Zingerman's Bakery in Ann Arbor. And Amy has stopped by to dish. And I'm glad to have you, Amy. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Yes, of course. And congratulations on the book. I feel like Zingerman's has always been a labor of love in so many ways. It, it feels that way. It has a warmth to, I think, anyone you ask, there's something wonderful that makes you smile about Zingerman's. And the book comes across that way, too. Uh, but to start off, give us a little history on Zingerman's, please. Sure. So today, Zingerman's is known as Zingerman's Community of Businesses. And there are 10 businesses who all share the Zingerman's name. Mm-hmm. Each one of us is a unique business. Uh, nine of the ten are related to food, and then the, the tenth is uh, a training consulting business, and we're all in the Ann Arbor area. But we started uh, in 1982 as Zingerman's Delicatessen, which was, you know, a, like a Jewish delicatessen, but also a specialty food store. Ten years later, 1992, the founders of Zingerman's Deli, Paul Saginaw and Ari Weinswag, decided that they needed to figure out how to grow um, their business. Hmm. And they made a really radical choice. Uh, rather than replicate and open up delis all over the country, which I have to tell you many Mich- University of Michigan alumni were asking them to do, they said, no, you know what, we're going to stay local and we're not going to replicate. And we are going to try to give the opportunity to other people in the food world who are passionate about a certain kind of food, like I am about baking, to open up their own business and that we're going to buy and sell between each other and um, sell to other businesses in the Ann Arbor or southeastern Michigan area. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic history. The Bakehouse was the second business in the Airman's Community Businesses, and now we have a creamery and a mail-order company and a coffee roasting business and an all-American restaurant. We, and our newest business is actually a Korean restaurant called Miss Kim. Yes. Does that give you the... 
good picture that, of it. It's a, very, it's a very good picture. And I love that you're branching out into the ethnic world as well. But I will say that was a very novel concept. Ten years after creating what was a very successful business, it would have been, I think, uh, maybe riskier, but far easier to duplicate or replicate rather than pay it forward and give an opportunity to uh, those with talent like yourself to build on the Zingerman's name. And that's something I think that steeps you in the history of culinary culture so much so. The, the bakehouse, or I call it the bakery, is famous. You're famous for a lot of things. Your coffee cake holds a place in my childhood memories. I alluded to that. Uh, my <laughs> my mother bakes a brilliant coffee cake, by the way, on her own. But I, I she does. yeah, she does. But I remember the special occasion of a Zingerman's coffee cake arriving in the mail. And via mail order, yes, we indulged in it, but my mom was always trying to duplicate the crumb. So what can you teach us, now that you're sharing the recipe, about baking the perfect crumb? Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with having your butter and eggs at the right temperature mm -hmm. and then creaming that butter for the right amount of time. You know, I, I can't translate it for you to a small machine, but we actually set the timers on our mixers here and we cream that butter and sugar for 10 minutes before we add any eggs to it. So they're at the proper temperature. Each room in the bakehouse actually has a different temperature, depending on what we're doing in it. Mm -hmm. And then you have to uh, cream it for a certain length of time and be exacting about that. Do the same thing every single day. I think the other thing that makes our coffee cake distinctive to me, which is something, unfortunately, not everyone will be able to replicate is the flavor of the butter that we use and the flavor of the sour cream, which is local to our area. But then if you could find butter or sour cream in your area that you particularly like the flavor of, then you can have, you know, your own kind of riff on the Zimmerman's Bakehouse coffee cake. Yes. And I think what you're saying rings true to so many of my listeners who for so many years have heard me, and I use the word lecture as politely as possible, lecture the idea that one should buy multiple olive oils and have an olive oil tasting and decide what you like for your palate. And the same applies to butter and the same Absolutely. applies to sour cream, right? And buying the best quality yeah. when it comes to a few ingredients in a sour cream coffee cake, buy good sour cream, right? Splurge Absolutely. and buy the richest and buy high butter fat butter because that flavor of your coffee cake is so distinguishable. And that's what sets it apart. Um, I love the baking tips that you strewn throughout the book. Um, when it comes to baking mistakes, you say don't be afraid of deep color. That's the other thing about Zingerman's Bakehouse is I love the depth of color and flavor in your sweets. I definitely, that is one of the things that people are most afraid of when they're baking. And that it's even true for when professional bakers first come to our bakery, and I, I notice someone's new because I look at the croissant or I look at the cookies and I mm -hmm. think, uh-oh, they're a little bit light. For some reason, we're afraid of color in baking our sweet things. So I want to remind everyone that color is caramelization of the sugars in the butter that's in your baked goods and also in the flour that's in the baked goods. And that color actually gives real flavor. And there's I think people worry that they're going to burn something, but the number of minutes between a really 
wonderful deep golden brown and burnt in many, many minutes. <laughs> yes. it, you actually almost have to forget something in the oven uh, to burn it. It can take that long. So I really encourage the listeners to uh, bake your cookies with a really nice color. Or bake um, scones with a deep golden color. They will taste much better. There are so many things that Zingerman's Bakehouse is known and loved for and that you do well. You bake beautiful bread like the pecan raisin bread I've had and is just so delicious. Uh, your Detroit-style pizza is unique and decadent and you share the recipe. Um, but you've had a couple flops along the way, right? I loved reading the story about 150,000 cookies. <laughs> yeah, that was a disaster. And now I can laugh about it. Oh, yes, on, only today, it. right? Yes. Right, right. It was right after the economy had, had turned down terribly that I'm sure many of the listeners can remember. Mm-hmm. And we thought we'd better try to do some things that were out of our comfort zone. And so we uh, teamed up with a local uh, Ann Arbor business that was actually national. And then they sold books. And they had a book by an Ann Arbor author about Christmas cookies and friends. And so we made a collection of Christmas cookies to sell along with the book. And we made 150,000 cookies sold in separate boxes. I can't remember how many boxes they were, something like 12,000 boxes of cookies. And we thought, oh, this is going to be great. And about three weeks in, when all the cookies should have been sold, I called uh, our contact at the book company, and I said, well, how many of those boxes of cookies have you sold? And should we start to make more? And he said, well, my movement report says that not a single box of cookies had sold. (laughs) It was quite shocking. Uh, I can't imagine. You know, this is a labor of love, and we asked them to ship back every single box of cookies because we really didn't want anyone to get a bad box of cookies for Christmas. Hmm. And uh, that was the end of that adventure. Right. A lesson learned, right? A lesson learned. Lesson learned. And that's really what sets zingerman's apart in my opinion and always will so kudos to you for staying true to the the love and the art of baking um, and to continued sweet success to zingerman's bakehouse and all the new projects as well i can't wait uh, to come try the new restaurant and of course to bake your magic brownies at home this time <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Amy, so much. Really, truly appreciate your passion and for taking the time to share it. Uh, Thank you to Zingerman's Bake Shop. Uh, Their first ever cookbook release is available now. Amy Emberling and Frank Carollo are sharing their secrets. And it's a stellar all-purpose baking collection for every skill level. The book is available at fine bookstores and on Amazon, of course, and at the Zingerman's website. And you can follow them on social for sweet escapades at Zingerman's Bakehouse. There's lots more delicious conversation and fabulous food from around the world in your radio right after this, so don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, feeding your soul to live the best life. 
The Mayo Clinic's comprehensive and integrative approach to health and medicine is based on 150 years of research and expertise by the best physicians and scientists in the world. Approximately 4,500 physicians treat more than 1.3 million patients a year. And in this age of managed care, it's likely that you have more questions when you leave the doctor's office. So this is a book you should have on your bookshelf. The new fifth edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book has just released, and Dr. Scott Litton, an internist with the Mayo Clinic, is here to keep us well and healthy. He has been with the Mayo Clinic for many years and has been in practice for more than 20, and he's all about the basics, diet, exercise, uh, reducing and limiting heart disease, cancer, and stress. And Dr. Litton, if we could do all of that, uh, we'd be pretty well off, right? Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you. Well, hello, Chef Jamie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. You're right. After, after being in practice now for close to 40 years, wow. I would far, far, far rather help patients stay healthy by eating correctly, getting exercise into their day. That doesn't mean running a marathon or <laughs> lifting heavy weights at the gym. I'm talking about walking, having a walking meeting, walking upstairs, uh, easy things. Sure. I'd rather help them prevent disease than see them 20 years later and have to treat the disease that they've had. Mm, what a novel approach. I think there are such simple things we can do, Dr. Litton. Like, I remember being told years and years ago, do not park in the closest parking space, park in the farthest, right? Take the extra walk in. Or like you said, take the stairs. You really believe from a medical perspective that that makes a difference. Chef Jamie, we could have you write one of these chapters for us. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, but this is all proven. This is all proven. So mm -hmm. if you take, like, a postman who walks yes. or a longshoreman, same size, same age, mm -hmm. everything else versus a sedentary person, mm -hmm. and you follow them. These are well-done studies. These people live longer and have less disease. What's the, what's the difference? They walk. Amazing. They walk during the day as opposed to sit during the day. Now, mm -hmm. we, you don't have to change jobs, but there's so many ways that we can build limited and mild exercise into our daily routine. Uh, when, when we take a, a little break, every hour just take a couple minutes and, and walk around, walk around the perimeter of the office. Mm -hmm. Get a standing desk instead of a sitting desk. Mm. That actually burns calories and helps you feel better. A meeting doesn't have to be three people in a room with coffee and donuts. The three people can walk outdoors if appropriate, or walk in, and where I am in Minnesota, we have a lot of subways and skyways, so we can move around in the winter. But there's plenty of options that you just have to build into your day that keep you healthier and happier. Oh, great reminders. Where do you stand on food and wine, Dr. Litton? I, I, I know from doing my research that you do enjoy uh, the lovely things in life, and I believe they make life richer, and they include, uh, you know, dinner parties and time with family around the table and um, a lovely bottle of Bordeaux here and there. Are you everything in moderation? Yes, I, I certainly think that studies have shown that our French population for some of their dietary habits, the use of 
a glass of wine, mm-hmm. sometimes for men, two glasses of wine daily are not harmful if there's no reason not to. On the other hand, you mentioned moderation. So I share with people, read food labels. Mm. Calories actually do count. Yes. But if you go to a graduation and you're trying to lose weight, that doesn't mean you can't have a piece of the graduation cake. Mm-hmm. You just don't take a huge piece of the graduation cake. Right. And so you, you just have to, it, it's, it's common sense. Yes. And sometimes in our busy lives, we lose track of common sense. I certainly appreciate your commitment to patient needs and to the fact that the Mayo Clinic treats every patient with um, dignity um, and care. And for that, um, we are grateful. Thank you for this extraordinary education uh, between two hard covers. The fifth edition of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book has released. And Dr. Scott Litton, uh, medical editor of the book itself, uh, an internist at Mayo Clinic, has shared 40 plus years and the Mayo Clinic's expertise to keep us healthy and well. I wish you a wonderful summer, Dr. Litton, and I, I thank you for sharing um, what is your uh, your genius and your passion. Thanks for having me. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of sweet treats, uh, a lovely glass of wine, and a good dose of medicine too. And I hope that you'll join me next Sunday as I plan to continue to feed your soul. I will leave you with my last bite for the hour. Uh, just four ingredients, in fact, in this summer marinade that adds mouthwatering flavor to every cut of steak. It is sweet and savory and delicious, and you can mix it up now. Have those steaks on the grill and delight in Dad's Day for all those fathers that you are looking to celebrate, here is my gift to you, a Dijon brown sugar marinade that is absolutely killer. You take a tablespoon of olive oil, two tablespoons of Dijon mustard, two tablespoons of brown sugar, and a quarter cup of soy sauce, and you load it with lots of freshly ground black pepper. And uh, this marinade will work for about every pound or so of steak. Could be flank, could be skirt, could be ribeye or more. I like to marinate for at least an hour um, and four hours is best. And then I keep my steak out of the fridge for a good 10 or 15 minutes to come as close to room temperature as possible before it goes on a super hot grill, get seared and marked and cooked to the perfect doneness. And then uh, allow me to say... It might be one of the best steaks you've ever had. My Dijon brown sugar marinade is posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen right now. And I will wish you a remainder of a delicious Father's Day weekend. And I will meet you here next weekend for more delicious conversation and inspiration. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.